welcome back to The Ties That Find. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is a true crime podcast that tells the stories of long investigated mysteries that are solved using forensic genealogy. As a disclaimer, I am in no way affiliated with or sponsored by GenMatch, Parabon Nanolabs, or the DNA Doe Project. Today, I bring you two cases that cover five victims of rape in the last 10 years. These victims are not named, but their rapists will be discovered and exposed. This case contains details of sexual violence, so listener, be advised. Welcome back for another week of The Ties It Finds. Um, this is the episode where we're going to get real and it's going to get rough. These are two serial rape cases I'm going to cover today. They are uh, serial rapes that have happened within the last 10 years. Now, 10 years is a long time ago. Can We can say is a long time. However, these two rapists, if they were not caught, they could still be out there. So I wanted to cover these cases to highlight the importance of you know, opting opting in a gen match to bring some closure for these cases. And in this case, for this particular episode with these two serial rapists, we consider opting in a gen match and discovering the identity of these rapists as actually preventing more crimes. This is not one of those one and done rape and murders from back in 1970, 1980, what have you. This is something that um, is going on and it's a huge problem in, in society, of course. Um, I'll get into some some statistics later after we go over the two cases, because when I was on the RAIN website, I was actually shocked to find out some, some of this uh, information about cases that are unreported and the conviction rate. So let's bring some more awareness and we can get some rapists put behind bars. Uh, one more last reminder, there are some details of sexual violence in this episode, so if there's any triggers you are sensitive to, feel free to opt out and we will just see you next week. Okay, for our first case, we are starting in Fairfax County, Virginia. I don't have, I wasn't able to find the exact city, but that's where we are. We are in the summer in August of 2014 at a local pool. The weather is not that great, so there aren't that many people there, but the pool is open and there is a lifeguard on duty. A man enters the pool area, pulls out a gun, points it at the lifeguard, tells her not to scream, tells her to do whatever he asks. She submits. He ties her up with zip ties and injects her with a dose of ketamine and rapes her. I looked up ketamine and ketamine is a painkiller in light doses, so it can do good, but it can also cause hallucinations and immobility in heavy doses. So it's one of those drugs that are great in small doses and horrible and possibly deadly in heavy doses. Considering this was forcibly injected into a rape victim in the course of a rape and for the reason of a rape, I'm not so sure that this rapist was looking to ease her pain, most likely to immobilize her. Two years later, we have the same scenario. So, and these, these, of course, these rapes will be connected. We have a Saturday afternoon, Labor Day weekend. Um, this is September 3rd, 2016. We are at another pool. This time we're in Alexandria, Virginia, which is about 20 miles away from the other, the first rape two years ago. Our victim is 24 years old and she's actually from Bulgaria. She's spending the, the summer in the States to um, make some money. Um, she's on a break from med school 
And she actually does have a boyfriend here. So I don't know how long she was here before. She is uh, working at the local pool as a lifeguard. Again, today is not the best day of not the best day for weather. The pool area is abandoned. Essentially, it's just one lifeguard on her chair. Uh, nobody is really around. And some man comes to the pool. He's there at about 1230. And he says, Hey, um, I was here yesterday. And I think I left my flip flops behind. But I'm just wondering if maybe anybody came across them. She says, um, I, I don't know about that. But let, let's look for them. So she helps she walks around with him around the pool area. They don't find them. And then he leaves. He comes back 30 minutes later. And he says, you know what, I really want to try to find these flip flops, which okay, come on, you're a grown ass man. Flip-flops are a dollar at Old Navy. Come on. He says, I left my flip-flops, can, and I still can't find them. They must be here. Can you help me out? So she comes down off of her chair, and she takes him into the pump room. The pump room is for the pool, obviously, but it also is where they keep their lost and found items. So they're in there, and she's looking through the lost and found box. She turns around, and she's looking dead center into the barrel of a gun. She starts screaming and he says, stop screaming or I will shoot you in the mouth. I'm going to rape you or kill you or I will do both. So that settles her down at least. Uh, of course, I'm sure she's terrified, but at least it quiets, quiets her down. And he ties her hands behind her back with zip ties, which we see in the 2014 incident. He puts on latex gloves, which I, I don't, I mean, uh, maybe he thinks that the DNA is going to get left behind. Maybe he can protect, I don't know, what he's about to do. He's going to leave DNA behind. He's got to know that. He does rape her. Um, and while he is raping her, he also is yelling at her not to look at him. And he's hitting her. He's hitting her in the face and in the head. When he's done, he gets off her. He leaves. He leaves on foot. And she waits a few minutes. And then she's able to get up you know, off the, off the floor of the pump room. She runs out to get to her phone and she calls her boyfriend. Boyfriend calls the police and everybody comes to comes to help her. The police say that her zip ties on her wrists were bound so tightly that at, at that point her hands were blue. This whole encounter took about 30 minutes-ish, maybe 20, maybe 10. Um, just not sure how we can have an open pool but no other employees around. But that's the information that I got. The problem with these types of crimes, um, or at least back in the day, is... Well, every time that they remember, every time that the that the law enforcement is able to get DNA from a crime scene, any kind of crime scene, they're only comparing it to DNA that they have in their database. And the only DNA that they have in their database in CODIS is DNA from either prior victims or prior perpetrators. So this, if there's no match, and there's no match here, there's no match, this must be a new perpetrator, a new rapist that is not on their radar. There was a tip that comes in from a mom who says that her son bought latex gloves at Home Depot earlier that day. Um, I guess they take his DNA, and there's, but there's no match. Not sure what the details are in that family, but um, I would say that's pretty awkward. Maybe her son was up to no good in his own way, and she suspected him. I, I'm not really sure, but it was mentioned in the, in the news report about one possible lead, and nothing came of it. So we have 2014, 2016, four years go by after that. At this point, of course, they have compared the DNA samples from both rape scenes. The law enforcement knows that it was committed by the same person, or at least the, the same owner of that DNA. One owner, two DNA deposits. Parabon takes over the case, and then they upload their DNA profile into GEDmatch. They send back 
a, a report for possible family members to the police department and then they get so they have a suspect pretty much one suspect that they're zeroing in on these the police officers of course they surveil him like we've seen in the past this man is it just happens to be in a restaurant he leaves the mexican restaurant and he leaves with straws in his i guess he had a margarita or something and he discards two straws on his way out out of the restaurant or leaving the restaurant area into into a dumpster they take those straws they take them to the lab and it's a match on February 12th, 2019, Alexandria, Virginia Police Department announces the arrest of Jesse Birke. Who is this piece of shit? He says as part of his mitigating um, defense, as part of his mitigating circumstances, his, his defense lawyer tells us that he was assaulted by a family friend when he was 18, sexually assaulted, and he was also introduced to porn at that time. We do see a lot of sexual sex offenders that are, you know, have, have a childhood trauma of being a victim themselves it sucks and i feel for him when he was eight doesn't make it okay for him to grow up and do the same thing to other people at a certain point he was married um then they got divorced because his wife cheated on him and then he ended up finding another woman and getting married again he has a daughter that's that much we know his sister testifies at a court hearing and says I, I just remember when his daughter was born and he was crying tears of joy, but now I wonder if he was crying because he was remorseful to what he had done. I mean, do people have a change of heart when they have kids? I am a mother myself. I didn't know real love until I had my own children. I never had tendencies to do bad things before I had children and then said, now that I have kids, I know it's wrong and I'm not going to do it anymore. Let's give some more details of what this piece of shit has done, uh, or at least discovered in the in the investigation for the rapes. In 2014, um, Jesse Birka, he was an EMT, and he actually had access to ketamine. So what the prosecutors and the police believe is that he had stolen the ketamine from work, and he used it, at, you know, clearly pre-planned to find a girl to sexually assault Clearly, this leads to premeditation. This is not, I just went to the pool, saw a girl, and said, I'm going to rape her. No, he actually stole drugs from work, scoped the place out for a victim, and knew that there wasn't going to be, an, that there was nobody there, because the weather wasn't that great. And he uses it on her as part of debilitating her so he can get what he wants. By 2016, Birka is now working as a nurse in the emergency room of the local hospital. He is working as as a nurse when he's arrested. Um, he's not arrested at the hospital, but it turns out that our second victim had been taken to this hospital after her rape. Police investigate his cell phone and his work attendance and such, and they find out that the day of uh, the rape in 2016 at the pool with the pump room. And they find out that he actually left work early that day. He worked the day shift. He was at work and he left by 8.30. And his call records are actually showing his phone pinging by the pool. His phone goes off that day between 12.30 and 12.41 p.m. And it's pinging by the, by the cell tower closest to the pool. And then later on, it pings at 1.06 at the same cell tower and then his phone is turned off again between 1.23 p.m. and 2.15 p.m. So we have him, or at least his phone, in the area during the times when the victim says that she was speaking with him. The second, um, our second victim, she has since gone back to Bulgaria, where she's from, and she has, you know, of course 
been traumatized and will al- always have to live with this, but she has, you know, she returns to school and she, she is a now a licensed medical doctor. But her experience is very, is, is very interesting because Birka showed up to the pool. He knew what he was going to do or what he wanted to do. He had done it before. He did it two years earlier in the same scenario and he got away with it. And now he's here around 1230-ish, and he goes into the pool and he says, hey, can you help me find my flip-flops? It doesn't work out. He doesn't actually attack her now. He just decides he's going to leave. Is it because she didn't give him that that little window to go into a more secluded area? Possibly. And then, or, or did he chicken out? Did he say, no, I really shouldn't be doing this. I got to get out of here. He leaves. But then a half an hour later, he's back and he's going to tr- try again. And this time, unfortunately, he succeeds. This definitely goes to show premeditation. This is not something that he is just doing on the spur of the moment because he can't handle his urges. Part of the investigation we discover from prosecutor Jessica Smith, um, she tells us that when they searched his um, cell phone and his computer, they did find some unusual interest in genetic genealogy. Um, and how it is being used to solve cold cases and crimes. At the same time, um, he also was trying to delete accounts that would track his location and remove his name from public records databases. We think that um, he kind of knew this was coming. We don't know for sure if he's still married at this time. I don't, I don't, there was no mention of a current wife, but we know that he did get married a second time and he had a daughter at some point because that's what his sister tells us in court. He also had mentioned to people at work that he might be taking a job as a traveling nurse. So he's going to still continue to be a nurse, but maybe he just wanted to try to not, you know, be on the police radar or easy to find once the police, he knows law enforcement's coming for him. So when we get to the court proceedings, wanted to go over briefly what the defense says. The defense says, well, you didn't get a warrant to get the straws that he discarded in a dumpster. The judge says, well, that's okay because they're abandoned property. You are throwing items away with your DNA on them. That's fine. So the defense says, well, okay, well, we'll work on a plea. Um, you guys don't, at you prosecutors don't ask for a life sentence, um, and allow us to review, um, to try to appeal for this, um, using the, the admission of this DNA evidence, because remember they took it, they took it without his permission. And the prosecutor says, okay, that's fine. We're confident that this is going to stick, but you do have the option to appeal based on this particular reasoning. Prosecutor Jessica Smith says, um, I think judge says to the judge, I think that we should put him away for 80 years because uh, I know that we agreed that I'm not going to get a like, ask for a life sentence, but let's just be sure that he never gets out. She argues that he gained his gained trust um, in these two lifeguards in you know, his two victims by being a nice guy. And then she says, quote, but it was not until they turned around and looked down the barrel of a gun and into the defendant's eyes that they realized it was all a ruse. A person this skilled at concealing the evil within can never be trusted to rejoin society, unquote. I think it's a great, it's a great way to sum it up. This guy did it, they did two, two years apart. But remember, and we're going to see statistics later, only about 25% of rapes are actually reported. When we also have people who are not reporting when this happens to them, the numbers are not, we can never really truly know the numbers. So are these the only two victims he has, or are these the only two victims that reported his actions to the police? I have a feeling he's did this multiple times and only two women actually came forward. 
Birka's defense attorney requests a sentence of, quote, a couple decades and, you know, quote, the low end of the guidelines, unquote, as a fair sentence for his client. He tells us, quote, he has many, many friends and family. He's worked successfully as a nurse for a long time, unquote. Defense attorneys need to do what they need to do to make to bring food to the table. That's all I'll say about that. Ultimately, the deal is solidified and Birka pleads guilty on October 2nd, 2020. And he is con- he is sentenced to 65 years in prison for both rapes. One rape he was sentenced to 30, one, one rape he was sentenced to 35. And he is about 39 years old. Well, we're now in 2021, about 40 years old at this time. The victim statement from the 2016 victim that um, that lives in Bulgaria, she tells us via video conference in her statement, quote, I thought the worst thing was to die. It was not. It is worse to live with this, unquote. And I'm sure a lot of rape victims feel the same way. The Fairfax victim does not make a statement. However, we do hope for nothing but the best for both of them. And that is the end of my first case. We'll take a quick breather and then we'll get into case number two. Case number two, we are in Germantown, Maryland in 2007, and we actually go into 2011. This perpetrator is a piece of shit. Um, just say it off the bat. So it was Birka. Um, this one's pretty terrifying. August 11th, 2007, one o'clock in the morning, an asshole forces himself into a victim's apartment. Our victim is 25 years old. He threatens her. He threatens to shoot her with his gun. Um, she actually does struggle and she fights back and he ends up fleeing the scene. She is fortunately not raped, um, but there is DNA left behind reported that it's collected from her clothing. June 19th, 2010, the same man, we'll find out because the DNA matches. He enters a a woman's house at three o'clock in the morning. He goes in through the window and we're going to call her Mary. She is 68 years old and he has some unknown weapon and he is pointing it at her head or threatening her with it in some way. And he rapes her. I picked the name Mary just because it's the most popular name from that birth year from 68 years after before 2010. There is DNA, like I said, collected at the crime scene and compared. And so now we have two two incidents by the same man. Just two months later, in August of 2010, the man comes back. Um, he goes across the street from Mary's house and he breaks in to an 86-year-old woman's home. This is actually a senior living center um, I, I looked, I Googled it and I looked at it. It looks like one of a huge hotel. It's like a, one of those assisted living places, I guess, or it's called the senior living center. It looks like a big hotel, but it's got like a courtyard in the center. Got like three, at least three floors, maybe four floors on it. And so I guess that she, I, I believe she lived in the, on the main floor. There's um, video footage from the news outlet that shows um, the window, the screen window had been just laid onto the side of the, to, onto the grass. So he breaks in her house. I'm not sure exactly what time, but in the middle of the night, he climbs into her window. He's got scissors in his hands at this point. This is his weapon of choice. And he rapes her. I mean, now we're, when, this is this guy's MO. This guy decides um, it, it's not sleepy time. It's not time to go to sleep. 
because he had a long day at work. He needs to go out and find a victim. He is going to do it in the middle of the night. And he's just going to break in. He's just going to go in through a window and he's going to threaten them and he's going to take what he wants. This is one of the biggest, my biggest fears is, is a home invasion. One, kids out windows and two, a home invasion, which kind of goes, which is pretty much one and the same. Um, either some kind of violence against me, some kind of violence against my children, anybody in my family. It's the one number one thing I'm terrified of. I can't imagine what these people went through. His fourth attack is a woman that we've actually seen before. This asshole, on January 5th, 2011, at 12.45 a.m., visits Mary again. Mary is from June 2010, just the summer before, and she's the 68-year-old. She says in an interview, and and we don't know what her name is, I don't know her actual identity, but she says in an interview, um, you know, with under anonymity, quote, the second time he came into my window, feet first, but as soon as he hit the ground, we looked at each other and we knew. I probably said something like, you again, unquote. And I read this, and I'm so enraged, and I'm terrified. This is our grandmother. This is, could be, at her age, a great-grandmother. This is a woman whose husband has likely passed at this point, or maybe she you know, grew into old, maybe she was divorced or what have you, but she's been living on her own. And all she's doing is sleeping. All of these women that this, that that in this case, this perpetrator is attacking, they are sleeping. You're at your most vulnerable. You are in your own home. You are supposed to be safe. And this asshole just comes and takes it from you. And then in Mary's situation, he decides he's going to come back. I cannot wrap my brain around it. This is why we need to opt in. This is happening across the country, and I'm not trying to make all of us terrified to go to sleep tonight, but come on. I mean, he's not the only one. These are the, these are the cases that are, are reported on. These are the cases where the victim actually reports the rape to the police. This is the, These are the cases where she reports the rape before the DNA evidence is washed away. And there's so many victims out there that are not that do not report and then do not get tested, get their rape kits completed, etc. And so many, so, so many rapes that go unpunished. It's just terrifying. She says in this interview, Mary does, she says, quote, I am determined to do everything I can to see that this arrogant little twerp doesn't get away with it. He should turn himself in and stop this. Otherwise, the next little old lady he breaks in on may have a gun under her pillow, unquote. I love this woman because that is That is exactly the best attitude to have is you need to get out there and say, I am going to take you down. You are not going to get away with this. And if you continue to do this, I hope to God that somebody else is going to take you out. I love her. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's no hits in CODIS. He's got no prior arrests. So we've got, and it's a stranger perpetrator and it's happening in the middle of the night. There are no witnesses, just like with with uh, piece of shit Birka. Same thing is going on here. They have nowhere else to go. They might have fingerprints and they have the DNA, but if they, they don't, if they're putting it in a system that doesn't contain that DNA, then they have absolutely nowhere to go from here. So the years go by and Parabon actually does get, um, you know, hooks up with the, with the law enforcement um, agency in Maryland. And in 2017, with the DNA profile, they are able to release a phenotype composite of what he looks like. The 
DNA profile for the GEDmatch um, comparison, you know, that is received in August of 18, and they submit it to GEDmatch. By September, Parabon hands over the the genealogy report to the Germantown Police Department, and one of the officers that looks it over um, he sees that there's there's a few names there. Remember, they're going off the Sandy, the Sandy Morgan matches, so the report will show strong family, you know, strong blood ties or fewer blood ties. One of the officers is on the case is actually very familiar with, um, you know, researching the family tree for his own purposes, and he says, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna see what I can do to follow these leads. He ends up calling a woman in Georgia, one of the hits from Gen Match, I believe, and she says, oh, you know what, I actually do have some relatives in Montgomery County. Here are their here's their information. So maybe you sh- should start there. Please do zero in on the guy. He matches the description of the of the composite and of the victim statements. He also lives in the area at the time. And so they are going to get the search warrant to swipe his cheek. They don't even do a covert surveillance on this guy. Whatever the parameters are in the court system or what have you, they don't even need to um, pick up that preliminary piece of DNA evidence and test it before asking for a search warrant. They do the cheek swab on September 13th of 2018. And they've run off to the lab. And on September 14th of 2018, police announced the arrest of Marlon Michael Alexander. Police also do say that they think he might have other victims, just like I said earlier, most likely than not. So it's very possible that he's got other victims out there that are just not that are not on the police's radar. So they're asking any other possible victims to come forward. So who is this piece of shit? Marlon Michael Alexander is about 40 years old. He's married. He's got four kids. Search of his laptop, police discover uh, porn of elderly women. So I have a feeling maybe he started off with the 25-year-old from back in 2007, realized, you know what, I don't want to have to fight this woman that I'm going to rape. And I'm just going to, I'll just go for a woman that, older women that can't defend themselves. Local news asked for reaction statements. Um, They did interview a neighbor. The neighbor said that they had been neighbors for about five years. He thought that uh, Alexander was a, quote, pretty cool dude. He said that they would talk outside together. It didn't sound like they were actually friends that hung out together. But he said that he saw Alexander, you know, doing things with his family, hanging out with the kids a lot. And he thought he was a nice guy. Alexander decides to plead guilty. Um, his defense attorney says, yeah, but he was on drugs and he was sexually abused as a child himself. And the judge says, sorry, that happened to you, but it doesn't justify what he did. You're getting two concurrent life sentences in prison. And that was an- his sentencing was announced on May 21st, 2019. You're going to jail. You're going to jail for the rest of your life. So we have two, uh, um, the two older women, the 68 year old Mary and the, the 80. Oh, forgive me. The 86-year-old, um, they had both passed, actually, before he was arrested, um, the 68-year-old Mary. She actually knew that he had been arrested before she passed, so I'm glad that she was able to get that kind of closure. Um, she did, wasn't able to see it through, um, but she did because she did pass before the sentencing hearing. One of the granddaughters of one of these women um, says, quote, my family wants to thank the Montgomery County police and the state's attorneys who work so hard on her case. While this doesn't return my grandmother's peace of mind that she lost or our families, it helps us to know that our community is safer and to know that no one else will have to go through this experience at the hands of this man, unquote. 
another granddaughter from the other victim, from the 86-year-old victim, she says, um, she pretty much says exactly the same thing, so I'm not going to quote her. It's, it's, they're relatively the same responses. And of course, this asshole says, well, I pray for the victims and I pray for myself for forgiveness. Okay, piece of shit. And that is the case of Marlon Alexander. Before closing this episode, I wanted to review some statistics about rape and sexual assault. I went to Rain's website. Rain is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. They are the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. They do have a helpline and they do chat on their offer the chat on their website. Their phone number is 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. And that's Rain, R-A-I-N-N, if you're going to search online. Rain tells us that every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. And every nine minutes, that victim is a child. 20% of rapes are committed by strangers, and only 23% of rapes are actually reported. And once it goes through the legal system, only five of those 23% are actually convicted. So there's a lot of graphics for the, under the statistics page, and it said out of every 1,000, 230 people actually report, and then five of those people that are five of those reported cases actually get a conviction. My interpretation: I have been blessed; I have not been a victim of rape. However, I have a feeling. I know that I know the feeling of being terrified. I know the feeling of being scared, and I think that if I were to be placed in this situation. And I, and I ultimately chose not to report, I would not report because I would be afraid that the person is going to come back and get me or my family. Or I would think that the person is just going to be let off scot-free and he's going to, and then essentially he's going to win. It, with this new technology we have here with our forensic genealogy in, um, coming onto the scene, just like we see in Birka's, Birka's case and in Alexander's, I think that that part of that can be taken away, that part of that fear can be taken away. And hopefully, um, we'll have more rapes reported. Once we have, um, once the report percentage goes up, and especially when we have serial rapists like these guys, police will be able to connect these, these rapes, and they'll be able to find these, find these assholes more quickly and put them away. When we have a serial rapist, they are put away based on the number of rapes that they've committed. So if we have one, two, once you have two, three, four rapes that are reported and that are known by law enforcement and they are linked with other women or men who have been violated, that is going to, how do we say, up the percentage of time that the person's going to spend behind bars. So if we have a perpetrator who's who's has five victims, but only one victim has been reported, then at that point, we only have one victim's worth of, of, of a sentence that we can, you know, that we can convict him for, or that he can plead on. He may not be pleading on the other ones because he knows the other ones didn't report their assault. So that's my spiel. Um, I hope everyone is well, and I hope that this has never happened to you. I hope that what happens going forward is we do start finding people that are more willing to report their rapes. And then also, I hope us as the general public who are not victims of rape, or even those of us who are, we are also, you know, this is just another reason why we need to consider putting our information into the database. These men are assholes. These men are monsters. These men need to be put away. They shouldn't be on the streets. 
So that's the purpose of this episode is to highlight this these stranger on stranger rape cases that are getting solved. It's very important that we put these assholes behind bars. Hopefully we'll broaden that database and we'll be able to make a difference. I know from a possible relative standpoint, being a possible relative of a serial rapist or any other kind of perpetrator, I know it can be scary. Um, However, keep in mind, it's not always the person that's closest to you that you may match with. It could be someone that is that actually you don't even know someone that you don't even have in your, you know, in your scope of of your daily life. Um, A lot of these cases that I've come across are they had to go up to the up the family tree, like two or three generations. So great, great grandparents you share. But in the end, I think it does serve a greater purpose. And hopefully we will broaden the database and we can get even more cold cases solved and bring these assholes to justice and get some closure or at least some resolution for the victims. The victims need to know that we as society will not put up with this and we're going to take action as much as we can to put their attackers behind bars. I appreciate you taking the time to listen today. Um, I'm, I know I'm, I wasn't as dark as a lot of other podcasts out there, but it was pretty rough for me to be able to research these two cases and get through it. And um, next week, we will see each other about another case. Let me know how you what you think about the podcast so far. Um, give me some feedback. Do you have a special family tree story? Or have you been touched by something like this in your life? Do you prefer certain types of cases, older cases, newer cases? John and Jane Doe cases. Um, Just give me some feedback. I want to bring the cases that the listeners want because I want to be able to illustrate in an effective way. That being said, you can find me at theties.find.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at theties.find. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast app you're listening to me on. And I will see you next week. Bye.